All right, Trinity Church, how you doing? Good day today. It's great to see you. I want to welcome you here. My name is Todd Arnett. I'm the lead pastor at Trinity. I missed you last week. I was away. Hilke did a great job preaching. I loved that. He just picked it up right in flow with the service and did an awesome job talking about how this hope of heaven continues to give us motivation, continues to keep us moving forward, trusting the Lord with what we have to look forward to. So you join us today towards the end of a series called After This Life, and we're going to be looking at some things together. If you have a Bible, you can open, open it up to 1 Corinthians 15. You'll note that we've been actually, over the course of, I think, week seven in this series, we've been at 1 Corinthians a lot because that chapter alone has so much to say about the resurrection, and it's a great place to uh, just continue to kind of refresh yourself. This is what we have to look forward to. In your Trinity this week, you have some notes that look like these. If you want to get those out, that help you track with us a little bit uh, better today. Now, one of the places, or the reason I was gone last week. It was interesting as we had this great crowd up here of people we are sending all over uh, the world, literally. Uh, There's a group of people who are actually coming from places all over the world to a place called Forest Home. Some are here with us today. Would you guys stand up? We got a good crew that's here. They didn't know I was going to make them stand up, so... (laughs) Spread throughout the building. I love it. Great. I have a a favorite of all of you. Her name starts with Aaliyah, so um, I'm on that. But uh, really glad that you guys are here with us. And they really are. They're coming for summer staff all over the place to be here right up in our mountains. And we're grateful for them. That's where I was last week at family camp for Memorial Weekend. And uh, appreciate the opportunity to be away and provide some leadership there. And just a great time with families all over, really Southern California, Arizona, some of Northern California. But so glad to be back with you today. First weekend of June. And this is how people in Portland celebrate June. Is a little bit like us today. So uh, that's great. But we're glad that you're here. Um, A couple things I want to remind you of. We have been talking for the last few weeks. Our service times are changing. Uh, Forest Home staff, good to know. If you show up at this time next week, it's going to be a little awkward coming halfway through the service. But uh, we're moving to 9 and 1045. One of the things that was great, if you were here last week, many of you did a survey for us. We're just trying to, this is a new change, right? and, And really, no service exists anymore after this weekend related to the time slot. They're all changing. So we're trying to get a ballpark of really who's anticipating coming to attending which service. And it was totally fascinating. They're almost perfectly balanced between 9 and 1045. So we're really grateful for that. And again, we expect people to move times and services, but we're just trying to get an idea of what to expect. And that was really helpful. So those service times begin next Sunday. You'll note just Sunday morning, 9 and 1045. It'll be later on in the summer in August when school kicks back in that we'll begin a 530 evening service. But for now, 9 and 1045, make sure you're thinking that for next week. Take a look at the back of your Trinity this week, if you would, this panel. You'll note the the, um, different posts that are there. But a couple of things I just want to draw your attention to. One thing that's amazing is just the way that you have been generous. When I think about your giving to Advent Conspiracy back in November and December, really, we, we received money that we were just going to give away. That's exactly what that is. And you gave incredibly to that. Then when I think about recently our impact offering that went to all three of our camps that our kids are going to be a part of, kids here on campus, our middle schoolers to Pondo, and our high schoolers to Hume San Diego, man, 
you, again, just overwhelmingly gave and were generous, and now we're going to be able to take a lot of kids to camp, and we're really excited about that. Um, but when you look at, and one thing that's really true of Trinity, when there's a cause, you even heard Jim share, there's still some people who are on this stage that are still needing funding. I, you're going to give to it. I love that. I'm not even, I don't have any doubt in my mind that you will. But one of the things that's challenging is giving to be able to turn these lights on. It's just not as cool, right? It's like super fun and exciting to give to causes and events. But then it's like how, and, and the interesting thing is, as these people are up here, they actually represent, many of them are going and we're partnering with global workers that we have a relationship with. Our financial support comes from our ministry fund. You'll note on our ministry fund, where we're at giving wise in the year, that's six digits. We're 100,000 behind in that. But I want you to watch this. No one's panicking. And the big reason why we're not is that we have ministry leaders who are intentionally using less than what their budget lines have been approved for. So that's why we really are in a good place. That's what I would tell you if we weren't. There's no secrets about that. And we're a family, just like a family should. We're not going to spend what we don't have. But I just wanted to bring that to your attention so that we're in our last month of our fiscal year. We end June 30th. If that's somewhere that you just like to say, hey, I'd, help, I'd like to help close that gap before we hit July 1. We have five Sundays. That'd be a great time to do that or however you give online. Um, but just want to keep you aware of that because that's really a goal for me is to never have people be surprised by things like that. We print that once a month. It's there like every other uh, first weekend of the month. And here's our goal behind that whole thing is we just want to say we really believe that God has so much for Trinity as we are moving forward and taking strides. And we just want to start forward in a new fiscal year with great confidence of what God has for us in this next fiscal year. So just a thought, shoot that over the bow uh, for you as a church family. Well, like I said, we're wrapping up a series on heaven and hell called After This Life. Our whole goal for even talking about this subject has really been the idea that we want to not just have some of our questions answered. We're going to actually specifically do that today. But the goal was, I've been a part of um, maybe in a church or, or just being in attendance of hearing about the idea of an interesting series, Right? Like, hey, we're doing a series on heaven and hell. It's so interesting. That has not been our goal. We are not trying to interest you, trying to draw you, woo you to be excited about heaven and hell. But at the end of the day, we also want this series, the whole goal was to be a motivator. Motivating us now to live in light of eternity. And that's been it from day one. Now, today's a cool day because we've actually let you set the agenda. I received so many questions. It was really great. We've been kind of promoting that the last few weeks and asking you to send in questions. I will say one thing we'll work on better next time is a deadline. I got a ton of great questions on Wednesday when I was already done prepping. So uh, we'll make sure that we get them ahead of time. But these five we're going to look at briefly today, I think are going to be helpful. And I think they're gonna, you're going to recognize things that you're going to go, yeah, I, I was wondering about that. And it'll be helpful to you along the way. Some of the questions we won't be able to hit today, but I want to give you a range. They range from things like the literalness of the descriptors of heaven. Will they really have streets of gold? To the other extreme, maybe, or another idea of can, um, will we be, uh, things like what will we eat in heaven? And a question like, will we all be vegetarians? And like we've said throughout this series, that sounds a little bit more like hell for some of you. So... (laughs) Um, so we get it, <laughs> but good questions. We won't get to address those today, but these
These are some of the ones that, the great ones that I got. Here's our now what statement. What are we supposed to do? Even on a day we're answering questions, what about this week in your notes? Our after this life questions should motivate us to find biblical answers as we engage Jesus's mission now. That's the whole point of what we're doing at today. I want to show you what the Bible says about some of the questions that you have, but it's always about God keep moving us, keep motivating us to engage why we're on the planet, to be a people rooted in Jesus, reaching our worlds. Number one in your notes, how should we think about the rapture and Jesus's second coming? Great question. How should we think about the rapture and Jesus's second coming? Your Bibles are open to 1 Corinthians 15. Pick it up in verse 51. Paul writes, listen, I tell you a mystery, mystery meaning this has not been disclosed as of yet. That's a biblical mystery, but now here's the truth on it. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory. Yea, God. Yay, God, this is great news. And Paul was writing for that purpose. He's wanting to help. He's wanting to encourage. And as we see that throughout our, our, uh, passage, our, our questions today, you'll keep seeing that bubble to the top. The reason that Paul is writing so much about things to expect after this life is to motivate you in this life. Yay, God, death swallowed up in victory. As we dive in today, I wanted to remind you a, a resource that I have been making known to you throughout this whole series is by Alan Gomes, 40 Questions About Heaven and Hell. Literally, this book talks about every single thing we're talking about today and so much more. If you just want a great resource, the way it's set up, it literally says, question 16, what is the final judgment based on? So all kinds of really good stuff that just goes, I was wondering about that. Again, a resource I'd wanna keep pointing you to because it's been so infinitely helpful to me. Now, back to our questions. Number one today, we're looking at how should I think about the rapture and the second coming of Christ? What we just read was actually a Bible verse that should be literally just posted on every single church nursery. Did you, you must have missed it. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Right? Absolutely. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. That is going to happen. I find it interesting to think about this, this particular question based on the way I was raised. And we're all unique. Some of you were raised in a church context, many of you weren't. But for me, it, this is an interesting question about the rapture because I grew up in a Christian subculture right here in this area. And, and what was really interesting about it is that we were very fascinated with end times issues. And by the way, it wasn't just here locally in the Inland Empire. That was kind of a big deal in most of the Christian subculture kind of in the 70s, late 70s and 80s is when I remember hearing so many things. There was a book written, I think, earlier in the 70s by Hal Lindsey, The Late Great Planet Earth, all about time stuff. This is this and this is that. And then a movie that came out earlier in the 60s called The Thief in the Night with his great Larry Norman song, You've Been Left Behind. And I'm telling you, that was a freaky movie on every front. I remember I was a Christian school teacher and I showed that to my Bible class, my sophomores. We went through the whole Bible in a year and it was great. So um, <laughs> there's plenty to criticize and poke fun at even now with some of those things, but I do want you to hear this. One thing that was very true of that whole subculture in the 70s and 80s, there really were a group of Christians that were leaning forward, anticipating heaven. We have swung the pendulum the other way where we rarely, if ever, 
Think about the great news that Jesus is coming back. And, and that's what has been one of the parts of the series is to help you understand there are so many great things to anticipate. This is why we want our gaze focused on what's to come rather than just being so lost sometimes and everything around us that's so mired. So in that, um, the idea is as we look a little bit today, I want to talk a little bit about this idea of the rapture because it was a very big deal back then. I remember in the church I was raised in and what we would do on, I think we had a Wednesday night kind of family meal and it would always go the same way. Literally would always sing the same song before we'd eat and it was called a, a little chorus called Coming Again. And we changed the words, maybe morning, maybe evening, or maybe morning, maybe noon, maybe evening, but surely soon. There's no maybe about it. That's happening. Well, that was in 1977. 2019. Some of us are doing the math and going, that's been a while since we've been singing that song, expecting Jesus to literally come back today. And again, I think as a result of his timing being different than some of our expectations, we've kind of in some ways just given up on the whole idea. He's absolutely coming back. And he's coming back in this powerful, what we're going to see to this powerful presence of coming to take his people back to be with him. Let me tell you a little bit about this line of thinking of what the rapture is. For those who would have this view, it's the idea that there's really kind of two returns of Christ. The first one is this idea of, uh, this is a definition, the transformation and catching up of all Christians dead or alive to meet Christ in the air. So that's what the, de- when people say the word rapture, that's what they're referring to. This is usually understood to take place before what the Bible describes as the tribulation period. And in this line of thinking, there's another what they'd call a public return of Christ where he comes to judge the earth. So just so you hear the view, that's the view of what the rapture is. And again, the view that I grew up just hearing so much about and all kinds of great anticipation. By the way, we should have great anticipation whether it's a rapture or this other view. The other view is simply there's a second coming of Christ. And all those same biblical texts that refer to this kind of, you know, ascension to be with Jesus, they all still happen. They just happen as Jesus is coming back to bring judgment to the world. So that's kind of what the, where the two views differ is one is almost this kind of what they might call a secret appearance of Christ where he raptures up those dead and alive. And the other is simply he just comes back and he's going to come back the way Revelation 19 describes him and his people will be caught up to him. Now, the interesting thing is I grew up hearing so much about these ideas. I thought I had been around this idea of the rapture for a long time. But when I did research, I found out that that view was really only became popular in the late 1800s, which for some of us seems really long ago, obviously. But in a kind of sense of the growing theology of the church that's very recent in the last, you know, 100 plus years. And it really became a big focus, like I said, in the 70s and 80s in a lot of the Christian subculture. Interestingly enough, Hollywood is interested in the rapture. Here's a, a couple of pictures of some movies that have come out. You might be familiar with them. One is obviously uh, a little bit longer ago, and one's a little bit more recent. But that's what this left behind idea was about, of people being raptured. It's really interesting, very crass, and a movie I would not recommend. But even this movie's been interesting. And I thought, why is Hollywood interested in making fun of the rapture? Very interesting to me. I just remember I watched the trailer and read about it. And I'm like, that's really interesting that this is something that we're going to kind of attack and make fun of. But either way, Hollywood actually has some interest in the topic as well. Here's my goal today. What I want to do is I don't want to create division and conflict um, about which view of the end times really is right or maybe is not. But here's the idea. It can actually become very contentious even when you're not sure what you're talking about. 
And here's what I mean by that. I remember I was a high school student, probably my sophomore, junior year. And I remember um, at youth group hearing about a Bible college that I knew well, that it actually changed their view away from this pre-tribulation, pre-rapture, or pre-millennial rapture to something different. And I was aghast. But if you were to ask me, Todd, what do those things mean? I wouldn't have been able to tell you. I just know, I just thought, how dare you? You know, how dare you change your view on something I don't understand? It's interesting. Even in our own um, Evangelical Free Church of America, our denomination, it's actually been a thing. What I love, when people ask me, how do you like being in the EFCA? I just tell them, I love it. And if you were to make me pick a denomination without even thinking now, I'd say EFCA. And I say that because of all the support and the connections that I have with EFCA leaders. And this is one big reason. I love that this denomination majors on the majors. Our doctrinal statement is very much, these are the big rocks about what biblical Christianity, I think, typically has been over the last 2,000 years. But there is one part of their doctrinal statement that got very specific on end times timelines. And actually, this summer is actually, that's going to be one of the issues talked about and even voted to change the wording where it simply says, rather than taking one of the two stances or one of maybe 17 stances on this, it just simply says, we are all anticipating the glorious return of Jesus. Amen. That's what we're after, and that's what we're excited about. So look in your notes. Don't let your view of these specific end times timelines cause you to miss the point of it all. Don't get so wrapped around the idea of which one it must be. Here's the great news. Jesus is coming back. The Bible says no one knows the day or the hour, so that could be today. There's nothing that has to happen for Jesus that he's waiting on to come and get us. But the great news is he is, and we can continue to live with that anticipation. Paul wrote to the Corinthians. I'm going to show you uh, what he wrote to the Thessalonian believers in just a second. But he wrote to them because they had questions, and they were letting it get wrapped around, you know, the branch of their mind of going, what's going to happen? How's it going to go? And he gave this to them to encourage them, to take away some of the mystery that they would constantly be concerned about and say, hey, let me calm you down. This is what you're looking forward to. And look at this great passage from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning of verse 13. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind, watch, who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who've fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who've fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left to be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in, in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Look at this last line. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. That's why Paul wrote this. Be encouraged. This is what's happening. Jesus is coming back. Number two in your notes. Will we have the same free will in heaven as we do on earth? This is a great question. Will we have the same free will in heaven as we do on earth? Let me give you a couple of references to get our mind thinking this way. Revelation 21, verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. 
Watch this, First John 3, verse 2. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So this is a great question, and I've given you two passages to clarify with sometimes what's kind of the heart of the question, and that is, will we sin in heaven, or is there the possibility that that might happen? And by the way, let me clarify again. We said this a couple weeks ago. I'm never going to sit and correct someone, but basically after death for the believer, there is this intermediate state as we're anticipating what we just read here in Revelation 21, the eternal state. That's usually what you and I mean when we say heaven is when we're with Jesus. Jesus in the new earth, the new heaven for eternity, that's when that's happening. And that's what this is related to. In that state, the Bible says everything associated with sin, like death, like mourning, like crying, those things will not be present in the new heaven and the new earth. So if the results of sin are not going to be present, I think it's very safe to say then the idea or the, the presence of sin itself also will not be there. So that's usually what we mean when we're asking the question about free will. Is there the chance that there will be sin there or that I might sin once I'm in heaven? And here's the thing. Why don't we believe that there's sin in heaven? Because the old order of things has passed away. This world, and we'll say this a lot today, this context is the only context we know. And you've been born into not only a sinful nature, but among a sinful race on a sin-marred planet. So that's all we have to compare anything to. We don't have the categories for some of the things we're going to talk about. And that's next in your notes. In your notes, we don't have categories for what we'll experience in heaven for eternity because we're currently part of the old order that is sin marred. So when Jesus, when it says here, all these things are going to, they're going to pass away. The old is gone. The new has come. It's that new that we're talking about and not just new behaviors, but a new nature. And that's what's exciting. Look how John follows the same order of thinking when he wrote to his listener, his readers, what we will be has not yet been made known. There's something still mysterious to us, something still not yet disclosed about what this new eternal state will be like. But here's what we can know, that in, back to 1 John 3, but when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. I think, though, there's other sides to this question besides simply is there sin or not. And it's kind of asking the question, will we just be eternal robots? Yes, Lord, I think it's great. Let's do that. You know, that's kind of attitude. And that's one thing that when we hear free will, we kind of cringe at that, right? We want choice. We want the ability to choose things. And we kind of are concerned about mindlessly having to choose to obey God and not having the ability to choose different. Well, let's see, let me show you why I'm encouraged by what we can know about that nature of what we'll have is simply this. We will be like Jesus. One of the things we forget is that in the, at the end of most of the gospel records, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each of the authors talks about what Jesus was like when he resurrected. Remember, 1 Corinthians 15 said he's the first fruits of the resurrection. As Jesus went first, so we will follow. It's not too much of a stretch to say, as Jesus was risen, so will we be. And so what did his body have? He had things like this ability to not only, and we'll talk about some of his behaviors in just a minute and his relationships, but the idea is, is there was nothing in him that was marred by sin at that point. Nothing ever was in his earthly life, but this new body that he had and the way that he related to things around him. Here's the interesting thing. God, the Bible notes numerous times that God is unable to sin. 
that though he has no constraints or is nor is compelled by anyone to do anything, it's not within the nature of God to sin. Go back to where it all began for us in the garden with Adam and Eve. Remember how Adam and Eve were created? They were morally perfect. Now watch this, morally perfect. And what did they have? They had a face-to-face relationship with God. They had no sin nature, nor had they sinned. But interestingly enough, we know that they had the capacity to choose against God's design and chose to do that. For us, we will be made new. We're very different, though, from Adam and Eve because we know sin well at the very beginning of how we were ushered into this world. So as we have not only new behaviors, we'll have new natures. New natures that are like Jesus in that we will neither desire to sin nor will we do so. This is the nature of God. He is not lesser because he cannot sin, but he makes choices only consistent with who he is. So you will be for eternity as well. You'll have a new nature that not only desires what is consistent with all that it is to be like Jesus, you will be free to make choices and live consistently with the new nature. And that to me is exciting. If that's the only thing you walk away with today to be excited about, that's huge. God, thank you that I'm not going to continue to live against your will for eternity. I, I walk away being real excited about that. Number three in your notes, what will our relationships be like in heaven? What will our relationships be like in heaven? And that question was asked in such an open-ended way. I want to give you a couple different ideas of what, what kinds of relationships we're talking about. I want to do that a little bit through kind of an interesting, like, why would you go there? Let me unpack it for you. In Luke chapter 20, verse 34, Jesus is having a conversation with a religious group of the Jewish religion called Sadducees. Sadducees are very interesting because they actually believe that when you died, you just were done. Like there's nothing, no afterlife of any type. So they're trying to put Jesus into a corner, trying to trick him. And this is where he finally gets to in his answer. Verse 34, Jesus replied, the people of this age, so this context of this, the, the human race in this era, are, they marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and watch and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And they can no longer die. For they are like the angels. They are God's children since they are children of the resurrection. Before you unpack that for a minute, let me show you something. Sometimes people will say, even in our church family, well, so-and-so died and now they're an angel or now they're my angel. I just want to say, I don't think the Bible teaches that. I know we read a phrase that just said that. It says they, they uh, can no longer die for they're like the angels. I'm going to explain that in a second, but I want to help you with that. I don't think anywhere in the Bible does it teach that someone, when they die, becomes an angel. We actually become something infinitely better. What this passage said, the children of God. So, so don't confuse that one phrase. I kind of think that's where that idea comes from, is that phrase right there, they'll be like the angels. Here's what that means in this case, like the angels, meaning they're not giving birth. There's no new angels that are being created through procreation. They're set. They're the messengers of God, and they are as they are, and they'll be that for eternity. So let's unpack a couple of these things. I do believe the Bible teaches that we will be known in heaven, and we will know others. First off, we talked about a minute ago, we know that people recognize Jesus, and he obviously recognized them, the risen Jesus. Now, we might say, well, Mary in the garden, she didn't recognize Jesus. I'm not usually looking for people who've been three days dead either, okay? So the fact that she was kind of aghast when she kind of realized who he was, but the minute she, he talked to her, Mary, 
She falls on her face and calls him rabbi. So this idea of being known, I think, is very much to be anticipated. The other is the idea we've looked throughout this series at a story that Jesus tells about a rich man and Lazarus. Not Lazarus who was raised from the dead Lazarus, but a guy named Lazarus. And the interesting thing is, through the lens of the rich man, he can look over this chasm and he recognizes this guy Lazarus that he knew in this life. So there is some idea that I think we can, I don't think it's a stretch to think that people will be recognizable. Some of you have told me when I get to heaven, obviously I want to be around the throne of God. I can't wait to meet Paul. I can't wait to meet Peter. I put my foot in my mouth all the time too. I want to meet that guy, right? Those are the things you say. Well, how would you be able to do that if you can't recognize anyone? So I think it's a recognition idea, I think is very much in scripture. But I want to talk about this, though not everyone is necessarily interested in the idea of what marriage will look like for eternity. I think it actually opens a door for us to understand some things about our relationships in heaven. Because again, we're trying to develop a new category of something that we currently don't experience. First off, Jesus says that we marry, quote, in this age, but that such a thing won't be needed in eternity. For some of us today, when you think about your marriage, you're kind of bummed by that, understandably. And others, you're like, yeah, that's great. So either way, um, I'm not going to say, and it's just in the nature of probably how today started. We'll just leave it at that. Um, But here's one of the reasons why I think that's true is that obviously the only purpose for marriage is not procreation, but it's one of them. And I think that the Bible seems pretty clear that there is not going to be children, that, that those of us that are in heaven are not going to be having more children. We are the children of God. Interestingly enough, a lot of religions teach very contrary to that, very much about ongoing having children throughout eternity. I don't think that's anywhere in Scripture. And so that's one of the reasons why then, on that front at least, that there need not be marriage with with the idea of not the need of reproduction. But another reason that marriage won't be a necessity in heaven is that we'll have a brand new category of connection and intimacy that far surpasses the most intimate of human relationships that we now know. I'm convinced of that. Let me unpack it a little bit for you. It obviously brings up the question that that some of us, by the way, the one question that I did not get on anyone's thing, because every question probably had an an email trail or a digital trail, will there be sex in heaven? Some of us want to know that, but you're like, I'm not asking that question. Well, I want to help you with that. I actually think this actually makes sense on this topic to kind of give an answer to that. And I've thought about that myself as well. And sometimes for some of us, it could, we might feel the lament of loss of this pleasure and this category if it isn't to be found in heaven. I want to help you in a very succinct way from a quote that I was so impressed by because it gets so much across in a limited amount of real estate. It's by a guy named Peter Kreeft, and he, his book he wrote, Everything You Ever Wanted to Know About Heaven But Never Dreamed of Asking. This is the quote. Take a look. The question of intercourse in heaven is like a child's question whether you can eat candy during intercourse. Just think about this. A funny question from only from an adult's point of view. Candy is one of children's greatest pleasures. How can they conceive of a pleasure so intense that it renders candy irrelevant? Only if you know both can you compare two things and all those who've tasted both the delights of physical intercourse with the earthly beloved and the delights of spiritual connection with God testify that there is simply no comparison. And in this life, no one's tasted that other. No one knows what it is to be rightly related to God in that sense. So we're comparing two things we don't understand, one of them. 
So this is answering the question, I think, in a profound way. And one thing I want to help you with, I think of the most intimate human connection you can have, either in marriage, friendship, parent, child, whatever it may be, doesn't begin to compare to the level of connection we'll have forever in eternity. Not only with God, but with each other. So I'd say, let that one go. If that's something that's keeping you up at night, man, what's it going to be like? And how are we going to have relationships with people? I just go, man, infinitely better. Like we've said throughout this day, there are categories we don't yet have that we're being asked to consider today. And we just have to kind of say, God, I, because I trust you, because I believe that you are good, because I believe that you have your very best in mind for your people, man, I just... Can, can go to sleep and rest well at night going, it's going to be infinitely better than anything I can compare it to here. Number four in your notes today, is the second death consignment to oblivion or just more suffering? This is a great question. Is the second death consignment to oblivion or just more suffering? This is an educated question because it's not just saying after we die, it's saying after judgment, and we've talked about that. We spent a whole Sunday kind of walking through that when anyone dies, I believe the Bible teaches this intermediate state, one for those who are in Christ, one for those who are not, but ultimately at the great white throne judgment, Revelation 20, people are going to be judged. So this question is saying, after that, this second death, what will it be? Will it be oblivion or just more suffering? Second Thessalonians 1.9, they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Over the course of this series, I have shared with you, and Hilke and Bill, as they've been preaching, we've shared with you so many passages that keep relating to the idea that both the reality of God and being with him will be eternal, but so is the reality of being apart from him and being eternal. And that's challenging stuff to stop and think about. The punishment that follows the second death being eternal. This is what Bill shared in Matthew 25 in the week he preached. Let me just review it quickly with you. Matthew 25, 41 and 46. Then he, Jesus is talking about as God is separating sheep from goats. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Then they will go away, verse 46, to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So you get this one-for-one one idea, no matter what, and watch this, no matter what, you and everyone you know is an eternal being. That's powerful to just stop and sit on that for a second. You and everyone you know is an eternal being. The simple question is to where? And again, that, that parable, or it's, the Bible doesn't paint it as a parable, just speaks matter-of-factly. Jesus is using an illustration. He made it real clear. A shepherd would easily know what are sheep, what are goats. And as he would sort them out and put them in this pile, there was no third category. There were either those that were going to be with him forever or those who were not. It was, it, the text is so simple. So the reality is, is that this understanding, it moves us. Revelation 20 is back to the great white throne and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. Watch this. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. And the lake of fire is the second death. Hence, the question was asked. Look at this last phrase. Anyone whose name was not founded. Remember what we said. This is what's so powerful about the great white throne. These books are open. They record everything in people's lives. However, God is the God of another book. 
And the other book comes out and there's no record of what people did. There's only record of names. Names who are found in Christ and therefore not based on what they did to have good or bad scales in the moral meter. No, they're simply in Christ. And as a result, they're gonna be with God forever. That's powerful. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. We could go on and on demonstrating passages that really do speak to the eternality of both not only reward, but of punishment. There are some people who are great people in our Christian circles who purport what I would call a terminal view of punishment for those who are not in Christ called annihilationism. And where the condemned face a time of punishment consistent with the degree of their sinfulness on earth, and then they seem, simply cease to exist. Now, and there's some people in that camp I really respect. So I'm not being critical when I say I disagree, but I disagree. And I often heard Christians say that they would like to believe this, this view of annihilationism, because it sounds so harsh and difficult to consider God eternally punishing sins committed during one's lifetime. It kind of begs the question, does the eternal torment of hell fit the crime of, lifetime, of a lifetime of sin? Or maybe another way of saying it might be the illustration of giving someone a life sentence for a parking violation. Is that just totally unfair? But I want to share with you the flaw in this line of thinking. I think it's a good question to ask, so there's no concern about asking the question, but I think it comes from a question, or it comes from an idea, though, that we haven't fully put our arms and head around. Your sin is not like a parking violation. And it doesn't matter if you're Hitler or if you're next door neighbor. It does not matter. The reality is you have a nature, you have behaviors that live outside of God's design. It keeps coming back to not how good or bad are you, but how good is God? Good related to his holiness. Good related to the fact that there cannot be any impurity in his sight. Go back to the garden. Morally perfect beings who had never sinned, God has a right relationship with them. Sin enters into the world and it's all broken. That's how it is, and that's how God is. What we have, we've said this in our series, our problem is we keep invoking euphemisms. We say words like, I made a mistake or a bad decision, when what you did was sin. Making a bad decision is getting in the wrong line in the grocery store, and I do that all the time. I'm horrible. I just tell my, my wife and my kids, you pick, because I always pick the bad line. And bad just means to me long. Some of you love that line. It's like, hey, it's really great. When you get up there, she'll talk your ear off. And you love that. I go, dear God, I got to move. Let's go, right? So, so within that, that's a, bad, that's a mistake or a bad decision. But the way that you respond to people harshly, that's not a bad decision. That's sin. The way that you disregard what God wants for your life, that's not a mistake. That's sin. And we do it all the time. And the Bible says that because of that reality, not mistakes, not parking violations, watch this, not only are we people who are apart from God, but more importantly, that's what Jesus died for. That's why he went to the cross and had the white hot fury of the wrath of God poured out on him was not for parking violations, but it's for a nature and behaviors that are constantly apart from God. That's why we needed what he alone could do. And I will say this, all throughout this series, it's been, what a great series to weekly be able to remind people. If you have not yet said, Jesus, would you please take my place? He's already done it. 
but you putting your faith in what he did for you, Jesus, would you take the wrath that I deserve? Man, there is no better day than today to make that decision. No better time than now to say, I'm gonna stop putting that off. I'm gonna stop playing games with God. I recognize how badly I need what Jesus did for me. And we've talked so much about this series is not about thinking of salvation as simply a get out of hell card. It's so much more. Jesus said, I came to bring them life and life to the full. You begin to get to taste heaven now. And that's exciting and something I just want to keep drawing you to. Today is the day. Don't keep putting it off. At the end of the day, some of us would rather wish that parts of the Bible would just go away or choose to believe something different than what the Bible teaches. I know people who say, I don't care what the Bible teaches on that. I don't believe it. I'm just going to say, be careful of that kind of statement. That's a that's scary business when you start getting into that world. But rather than do that, I would encourage you to do with difficult ideas that the Bible puts forth what helps me. This is how I process that. What do I do with these difficult things to try to understand or to try to deal with in my life. I don't believe that God has got something wrong with how he does things, but that I, I, in my limited capacity, I simply can't grasp who he is and how he works. Look in your notes. Rather than attempt to change God or, or what he has communicated in the Bible, instead choose to claim that you don't have the clarity you need to see things clearly. That is not a dishonest question. It's as honest as you can be. God, I don't get it. I don't understand it. It's frustrating, even confusing for me. But I believe that you are good. I believe that these words that I read in your word, they are true about your character and your ways. And until I can understand, and that might be face to face with you in heaven, I'm just going to keep trusting that you know best. When you can't understand the ways of God, keep connecting what he does to who he is. Eric Taunus, when he was here, Biola professor, week two of this series, that was the whole message. Who God is dictates what he does. Trust his character, even when we don't understand the behavior. What God does flows from his perfect, eternal character. You don't have more holiness than God does, so stop minimizing the effect that your sin has not only horizontally on others, but vertically towards him. Let's stop calling things mistakes and bad decisions and call them for what they are. You don't have more justice than God does, so stop getting in your head of all these ways you have to try to defend his ways and trust that his character is what it is when you don't have answers. And finally, in your notes, you don't have more compassion than God does. So stop thinking that you love people more than their creator does. Sometimes when I hear that argument about the realities of even how there's a hell in the first place, I go, God, I don't love people more than you do. I want to stop thinking that. Not for a second. He not only created them, he died for them. So they could be with him forever. This is the God that we love, the God we've been singing about today, that he's worthy of our praise. Finally, number five today, how can I better prepare myself for heaven? This is an interesting question. How can I better prepare myself for heaven? Romans 8, love this passage. We know that, verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up until the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, watch this, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly. 
for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. We've been always looking forward to this. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. I think this question, how can I better prepare myself for heaven, maybe has two prongs of where it's coming from. One might be maybe someone concerned with losing their salvation, and what do I have to do to kind of make sure that doesn't happen? I don't think the Bible teaches that, the idea of truly that you can lose your salvation. Once you're a child of God, you're adopted into his family. For others, the motivation might be more like, how do I become maybe more worthy for heaven? And I'd also say, I don't think that's a motivator that biblically you're going to find. But I will say this, I think there is some things to talk about on that topic. Look in your notes. Let the things that we've been looking at during this series keep you leaning forward. Keep you eagerly anticipating with great anticipation of your adoption, the redemption of your bodies. Let that be the thing that you walk away with and how you better prepare yourself is the way you keep daily anticipating it. Many of you know my friend Ruth Larson. I love Ruth. And when I talk to Ruth, she's so great. Most things that we talk about, they're very brief conversations, but they usually end in, I'm not gonna be here much longer anyway. Praise God, I'm gonna be in heaven. That's usually, she just comes to that point. I'm not gonna be here much longer anyways. Praise God, I'm gonna be in heaven soon. And what that communicates is two things. Number one, she has a great confidence that she knows that's where she's going. Not again, because Ruth has got it all together, but Jesus does. She's entrusted herself to him. But here's the other thing it shows is anticipation. I can't wait. It's going to be great. It's coming, and I'm so looking forward to it. I love that about Ruth. She's such an encouragement to me. But here's the interesting thing. For those of us who are not yet in a season of physical life where we should be greater and greater anticipating our home going, that is a very euphemistic way of saying that Ruth is a senior citizen, okay? And by the way, Ruth will be the first one to tell you how old she is in any conversation you have. I called her and I asked her if I could talk about her today, so I'm all good. Don't think that Todd's going to get hate mail from Ruth today, because <laughs> Ruth really loves me. She only sends me nice stuff, so. Um, but, but, here, but here's what I mean, though. Yeah, there is a thoughtfulness where where some of us might go, well, yeah, when you're getting to certain seasons of your life, you should look forward to heaven. No, no matter who you are, no matter how old you are, no matter how good this body works, no matter how bad it doesn't, no matter how great your finances, no matter how low your finances, all of us should be desperately looking forward to heaven because anything here doesn't begin to compare to what's there. That's where, and that's why we've done this series. God, raise our gaze. Help us to eagerly anticipate. And in the in-between time, what should we be doing? 2 Corinthians 5.20, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That's what we do in the meantime, because watch this, no matter what we do in our relationship with Christ on here, there is one thing we will not do for eternity be able to share our faith with people who don't yet know him. We're ambassadors. What should we do to prepare ourselves for heaven? Engage your mission now. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today with great questions that your people have asked. They have a lot of other great ones too. But I thank you for these five we've been able to look at today. And God, our goal has been like it's been all throughout the series, not to know interesting facts, but God, to be motivated and to be moved 
to want to be with you, God, to want to draw near, to want to be around you, your throne, forever in heaven. Would this series continue to give us great anticipation? And God, in the in-between time, while we're still here, would you also give us great motivation? Would we be living lives that we want to hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. God, let us live with that focus. It indeed matters most. You may be here today and you've never responded to Jesus' invitation to take your place at the cross. The Bible says very simply, it's going to go one of two ways. Either you're going to take what you deserve, what all humans do in our sin-marred state, or you can say, Jesus, would you take my place? That's what he's done. He's already done it for you. It's simply putting your faith, your trust in what he's done. It begins by, A, admitting that you're a sinner who needs a savior, be believing that Jesus is the only Savior available. And see, choosing. Choosing not to say, God, how do I get more moral? How do I get myself cleaned up? How do I get my act together? No, I choose to put my hope, my faith, my trust in what Jesus accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection. That's where it begins. And I want to implore you today, if you haven't yet put your faith in Jesus and what he's accomplished for you, don't leave here until you have. Father, we love you. Move us, motivate us to be rooted in you, reaching our worlds this week. We love you and we pray in Jesus' great name. Amen.